0: savannah passed away of course we were devastated our our world was turned upside down and and if you've ever lost a child you just feel like you cannot breathe into the next you cannot take the next breath you know it's just it was just so devastating and and for probably a year and a half we could think of nothing else but we wish savannah was back we wish savannah was back but then after we started fostering Um, we didn't do it only because Savannah had wanted us to, I think in the back of our minds that thought was there, but we did it because we just felt that's what we're supposed to be doing. It's like there was a transition between Savannah's death and then our fostering. It's like, you know, Savannah passed away and yes, we were mourning, but we did have to come to the, to the decision are we going to be bitter? Are we going to be better? And we chose to be better. So to make long story short, our first sibling group, after we received our license, was a group of four. And uh, they stayed with us for seven weeks, and then they returned home to their mom. That same day that they went home, we received a sibling group of three that we adopted 19 months later and before they were adopted we also got a call for a five-month-old baby that was supposed to be short-term but at the age of three we adopted him shortly after that we got a call for uh, his sister we knew that he was an only child through his mom but the sister was was through the dad's line we were able to take her into her home and she was adopted this year and so that's, that's five adopted children. And then we also foster a teenager who we're very blessed to have. And we felt the call uh, just as we kept going through the doors for our fostering license. And then now that we have these children, we cannot imagine life without them. The, this was out of our comfort zone because we were dealing now with, with parents of children that, that did things that we did not do. You know and and we're in trouble or in jail and um, you know on drugs or whatever, but we we didn't only want to minister to the children at that time we saw we all we could be a we could be an influence to these parents, and God did allow that to happen um, as far as salvation for the first sibling group for their mom and dad and actually for the the baby that we adopted from when he was three, um, his mom actually comes to Union Chapel now, and through the ministry of the Winchester Home, um, she has accepted Jesus and um, and is doing very well, and we're we are so proud of her. Savannah was a person that just just loved life. Everyone loved her. She was an old soul. Uh, she loved the children everywhere she went. There was a child on her hip. If we were camping, she was like collecting all these children and I was like Savannah you cannot just just go and bring all these children to our campsite and she said oh I asked their parents and this one's over there and this one's over there and this one's over there and so um I used to be I used to be more uptight and I like things I mean I would I still like things a certain way but it's like that's all that mattered but then after Savannah passed away it's like you know Those things don't matter anymore. What matters is loving people and doing more to show them the love of Christ. That is all that matters. And, I mean, sure, you still have to have the organization. You still have to have the children do their homework. But Angie and I both believe that and feel that through Savannah's passing, um, God has, has made our hearts bigger for the people around us just to to love on them and for this the sole purpose of showing them jesus
1: good morning church great to see you all welcome to union chapel today uh everyone has a story everyone has a story And Greg and Angie Posey raised three children, the third of which passed on, and it left an impact in their lives, changed their lives. So they started fostering and adopting parents, and we uh, are amazed at their story. It's a powerful story. They're here today. They've packed a whole row. Did you keep track with the numbers? There's a bunch of them. We, we jokingly say there's a pocket full of posies around here, so amazing. Well, everyone has a story, doesn't it? Does does Some of you think your story is insignificant. Some of you think it's unremarkable, nobody cares. Maybe you're ashamed of your story. Maybe you're curious to see how the story unfolds, but all of us have a story, and there are two things that we should keep very clear in our mind, especially through this whole series, is that... God cares more about your story than anyone else, and also God has the power to change your story like nobody else. And so be encouraged. We learned last week from the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that your hope, your dreams can be restored, and your story can be changed. So be encouraged. Today we want to talk about the life of a man who was a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus, and he had an encounter with Jesus And so we've chosen as our text today from John's Gospel, chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first 17 verses there out of John's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, of course, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand, to hear God's Word, to honor His Word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, You are Israel's teachers, Jesus said, and do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, just as Moses Lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. May God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, this encounter with Nicodemus came early in the public ministry of Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, as we read, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Now, we might just pause there and note that coming at night, you know, has implications. We understand that this was low-key. Nicodemus didn't want to be caught associating with Jesus. It wasn't good for him personally or professionally, He's the wrong guy to be associating with, and so he's he's on the down low, and he comes at night. Now it's interesting that we can make some association to this in our world today. We live in a world where even Christian people are hesitant to express their confidence and trust in Jesus Christ. Lots of pressure points, postmodern, post-Christian culture we now live in, and Christianity is not popular. So we tend to succumb. To the idea that the Christian message should be modified so as not to offend any person of any stripe with any suggestion that there is something uniquely special about Jesus Christ. I mean, God forbid that anyone assume a bold, confident, articulate position about the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or his sinless life and sacrificial death and the bodily resurrection and eternal hope that is found and offered in Christ alone. There should always be, of course sensitivity and love and hope when we express our faith to others, the goal of our instruction in love. But Jesus should be our model. He should be our model. So where Jesus is bold and unapologetic about himself, we also should be bold and unapologetic. Amen. So Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling Jewish council. This group was made up of 71 ruling elders, all men in Jerusalem, led by the high priest, made up of scholars and priests from two different groups the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these uh, these guys uh, had very much power, religious and spiritual issues. They had absolute authority, they were major players in the crucifixion of Jesus, as you recall. And so Nicodemus is a member of this ruling Jewish council. He was a Pharisee. Pharisee, literally, the word means to separate. And these guys were hyper-legalists. Hyper-legalists. Their entire life revolved around keeping the law. This included the Mosaic law. There were over 600 laws, rules, regulations that came from Moses. And then on top of that, these Pharisees added... Uh, what they described as oral laws, hundreds more laws, and the combination of all these rules and laws and regulations squeezed and strained these guys into a very highly compressed state of existence. Imagine your tidy whities twisted as tight as you can possibly bear them and then twist them one more time. This is how the Pharisees went through the world. I mean, their eyes were bulging, their ears were ringing. Highly legalistic. Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, comprise the Bible. Testament literally means agreement. So we have an old agreement and a new agreement. Now the old agreement, the Old Testament has to do with this law that I'm describing, the Mosaic laws and these oral laws. And the New Testament has to do primarily with the theory of grace. So we have the law in the old agreement and grace in this new agreement. And God gave the law for two primary reasons. One was for instruction. This was to simply give the Jewish people and the, the nation of Israel a, def, a definition. The, 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 the Old Testament law defined the people of God with regard to the moral aspects of their lives, the Ten Commandments and such, the civil parts of their lives, you know, uh, how do you, how do you uh, manage land ownership and and civil disputes, that sort of thing. And the third portion of the law had to do with the ceremonial part, or the religious rituals, and how to perform those in a meaningful way. So it instructed Israel in their culture, and it made them unique and distinctive among all the peoples of the world. And so the one reason for the the Old Testament agreement law was instruction. The second reason was for perspective. Now now listen to this, very important. So that people would realize that on their own, they were sinners separated from God because no one could fulfill the whole law. I mean, it's just hundreds and hundreds of rules. No one can manage them all. No one is good enough because no one can follow the law perfectly. Let me show you a scripture, two verses Here in Romans chapter 3, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. So the law gave us perspective in that it became almost like a moral mirror. And we look into the mirror and we say, look, I'm falling short of these expectations. There's hundreds, you know, around a thousand of these rules and laws And I can't possibly fulfill them all, even even by by not paying attention, I break some of them. So I'm going to fall short. So the law reminds us that we fall short of God's best standard and that we all are sinners. The Pharisees followed the law because they thought this was the best means of pleasing God. It did two things for them. It made them feel better about themselves because they were good little boys, you know, doing the best they can to follow the rules. And it also made them feel superior to other people. They went beyond the Mosaic law to the oral laws because they wanted more rules and regulations so they could feel even better about themselves and feel even more superior to those around them. Now, this was taken to the extreme. Let me give you an example. A woman could not look into a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And by plucking out a gray hair out of her head on the Sabbath would constitute work, which was forbidden, sinful. Here's another example You could eat an egg laid on the Sabbath only if you intended to kill and eat the chicken the next day. Eating an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath alone would be a sin because the laying of the egg of the ch- by the chicken constituted work on the Sabbath. So you can see that this extremism, this hyper legalism, Nicodemus was one of those guys they had externalized their religion by rule keeping being right with God was all about rules and regulations meant to govern every possible circumstance of life now listen listen the rules became more important than God himself and let me just add quickly that Jesus had absolutely no tolerance for this attitude he, 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 was, he was not playing along for a second with these guys. When you ask the question, was Jesus ever, you know, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, was he ever mean to anybody? Oh, yeah. Just one group, these guys. I mean, I, he, he lowered himself to name-calling with these guys, called them a bunch of vipers, a bunch of snakes. I mean, the worst commentary he made about them was he he said, you guys remind me of whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all buttoned up, but on the inside, you're rotten. Whoa. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. The only people Jesus was mean to were people who were mean to other people. Think about that. So this is why you always find Jesus in conflict with these guys. And by the way, we have legalists alive and well in our world today, and I'm going to talk about religious legalism for a little bit this morning, but we also have social and political legalists in our world right now, ideologues. And by the way, every idealistic, every idealistic person uh, in our world, ideological in their worldview and their bent, every ideology in the world, listen, is going to fail. So whatever is being touted in this particular current moment of history, whatever ideology is, is current and trendy and popular, it's all going to go away. Because one day there's only going to be one governing factor, and that is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the world. And as it turns out, a dictatorship is the greatest form of government in the world, so long as the dictator is benevolent. And our benevolent king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to rule and reign, and that means everything is going to be perfect in love, perfect in unity, perfect in justice, perfect in every way. Praise God, that day is coming. In in the meantime, you know, we have people in our culture today who are, you know, in the the modern vernacular, they're woked, they're triggered, they they enjoy virtue signaling uh, to those of us that they think are missing the point. And so people are bullied as a result of that. Uh, we, have, we, we are seeing people terminated in major newspapers for just stepping off the narrative just a little bit, writing about something that doesn't fit within the legalistic parameters of the ideology of the day. We have major media outlets, Google and Facebook, firing people, again, for the same, for the same reason. University professors across America being fired because they text or tweet or Instagram some comment that does not fit the ideological narrative of the day. So there's all this intolerance. The the one thing that we know cannot be trusted for any reason in our culture right now are polls and surveys. And the reason they can't be trusted is because people have been kowtowed into being afraid to actually express what they think and feel Because, because they know if what they think and feel is outside of the ideological narrative of today's culture, that they'll be impugned for it. So people are reluctant and they withhold and they hold back. So it's a fascinating phenomenon where you have people who who most frequently preach tolerance who now become the most intolerant people in the world. And they either don't see or they don't care about the hypocrisy in that. Fascinating day. So we see legalism on display here and there. Now Nicodemus seems to be a bit of an exception though to these extreme legalistic rules. And we know that's true because he came to Jesus with a searching heart. Boy, this is really helpful. He knew something was missing in his life. He he knew it. He realized you can't have a meaningful relationship with God or anyone else based on rules and regulations. Can't do it. You you cannot externalize your faith. You have to internalize your faith. I just said something really profound right there. You can't, you can't just make God a construct made in your own image and shaped uh, to your ideological worldview. You can't do that. That's, that's not the God we serve. The God we serve wants intimacy with us, He wants relationship with us, He wants warmth between us. He desires to be in communication with us and relationship. at a a very significant level. So you can't just construct God and make him up in your own image, and you you can't satisfy God just by following a bunch of rules. I mean, come on. That's just so off the point. So here's a few things we learned from this encounter. Here's the first one. It's on your outline. Jesus knew what Nicodemus needed. He knew what he needed. Jesus addresses Jesus with this wonderful greeting that is actually left unanswered. We know you must be from God. No one can do the things you do unless God is with him. I mean, that's affirming, right? That's... So Nicodemus had thought this out. He said, if I'm going to approach this young rabbi, Jesus, I, you know, I need to find some way to affirm him. And so the first thing he says is this affirmation. Jesus ignores the affirmation. He knows that there's a need in Nicodemus' life, and he's going to answer the question that Nicodemus has in his life. The reason for him coming to Jesus, Jesus goes right to it without any prior setup or context. And this is what Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Well, before Nicodemus asked the question, Jesus gives him the answer. Yeah. So Jesus knew Nicodemus had something desperately missing in his life. He knew what had brought him to him. And he knew that legalism does not make you right with God. It leaves you wondering. Legalism doesn't offer you peace with God, it leaves you suspicious toward God and toward other people. Now, I'm going to make some statements now, and I I really want you to tune in, because some, some of you, maybe many of you, are under the influence of some kind of legalistic, restrictive kind of upbringing, some kind of culture that you need to be liberated from. Listen to this now. Legalism essentially is a system that is rooted in unresolved sin. Now think about that. People tend to get legalistic, rule-keeping, insistent that others follow the rules and don't break the laws because of unresolved sin. Say it another way. My unresolved sin will sensitize me to the sin of other people around me and I become their judge. You've heard the phrase, I am what I hate. Have you ever heard that? I am what I hate. I hate what I am. I am what I hate. I hate what I am. This is this is why sometimes you, you might see preacher types, you know, pounding pulpits and getting red in the face about some sin or some group of sin, you know, sexual immorality or unfaithfulness or, or thievery or greed, you know, and they just, you know, just get all worked up about some particular sin. It's like their pet sin and they just continue to pound on it and grind on it. Well, what that m- most of the time means is it's directly related to some unresolved sin in their own life. I am what I hate. I hate what I am. So the things that you tend, I tend, to be most critical of in other people's lives tends to be unresolved issues in our own lives. I know what you're doing right now. You're thinking, I didn't have to come here today. You know, it's not even, it's not even safe to be around people right now. And I could be home, you know, eating ice cream, but No. I'm here listening to this. So many legalistic religious cultures actually produce hatred and bitterness toward others. You know, it's judgmentalism. It's jihad and the like. So Christian legalists, which is an oxymoron, by the way, Christian legalists develop the need to control others in order to stop sinful behavior. That's how they rationalize it. If I think I'm responsible to control your sin, however, I will only... I will only break you or damage your spirit in the attempt. So if I think I have to control, then I have to increase the pressure and the pounding when it doesn't work. I had another pastor in my office years ago, and he was one of these, we'd never met. He heard about our church and wanted to talk to me. And so he came in my office and he wanted immediately, wanted wanted to talk about numbers. And that's always a sign to me. And he said, how many people do you have on Sunday morning? I said, why do you ask? Well, I just want to know. And so he forced it out of me. I said, well, I have about this many people attending. And he said, do you have Sunday night services as well? And I, at the time, we did. And I said, well, yes, we do. And he said, well, how many do you have on Sunday night? And I said, well, it all depends. He said, what do you mean it depends? What's it depend on? I said, I said it depends on the dog and pony show that we bring out on Sunday night. I mean, if it's a compelling subject and an interesting guest speaker or some kind of special music, musical group or something like that, then we'll have a nice crowd. Otherwise, if it's just routine and I'm just going to lead a Bible study or something, I said, you know, the, the numbers will be much less than we have on Sunday morning. And he just looked at me and kind of, well, that's too bad for you. Uh, and he, you know, his chest swelled and he said, we have 400 people on Sunday morning and we have 400 people on Sunday night. And I just said, that's a shame. That's too bad. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? Because he was so proud of that. And I said, sir, there is only one way in this world that you can have the same number of people on Sunday night in church life in America as you do on Sunday morning. And that is if you beat the crap out of your people, shaming them and guilting them and making them feel horrible for not attending Sunday night. And when I said that, his head dropped. You can motivate people with shame and guilt and fear. You sure can. But it's not the best way. In fact, it's a sinful way. In fact, it damages people. In fact, it ruins their spirit. It spoils them. It's not good. So, therefore, legalistic traditions are absolutely unreliable as a source for establishing healthy identity. People never really understand who they are, what their potential is, how valuable they are as human beings in the context of this kind of pressure. I'm never really free to be completely me. I don't trust me because I'm a bad person and everywhere I turn, even in my religious environment, I'm reminded of how bad and sinful I am and therefore I cannot trust the God who made me. I never find out who I am. Let me put this statement on the screen. I really want you to get it. It is so hard for people from legalistic religious backgrounds to know, receive, and trust the love of God because they do not trust the God of love. Consequently, faulty beliefs about my identity will will inevitably, eventually and inevitably surface in some kind of dysfunction. Now we have a number of recovering legalists at Union Chapel. for years, I noted this and kept track of these folks, and, and this has just been a trend for decades now in the life of our church, um, that people who, who were part of some kind of legalistic religious background in their past come to Union Chapel to recover. We've seen hundreds and hundreds, I suppose thousands of people over 40 years now who have attended our church, some of them just for a few weeks. And it was just enough for them to get what they needed, to be reminded that they are valuable in the eyes of God, that God loves you, accepts you, and forgives you just the way you are. Did did you know that, that it's not necessary to remind people that they're bad? We already got that, don't we? I mean, we understand that. There's one thing that human beings realize about themselves. We're just a mess, we resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says, look, I do the things I don't want to do. I find myself doing the things I actually hate. Wretched man that I am. What can save me? And he appeals to the grace of God and the love and acceptance of God. So I had a friend, I have a friend, a very close friend. He, 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 he and I had regular contact for a number of years And I tried to persuade him to join our church. Come to our church because he wasn't going to church anywhere. And I counseled and encouraged him. I gave him books to read. One of the books I gave him to read was What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. It's my favorite book on grace. What's So Amazing About Grace. If you read it, you'll be better for it. And by the way, when this series on the power of the story is over, I'm going to do a four-week series starting in mid-September on the greatness of grace. Grace is greater than grace the issues that tend to grab our lives and keep us from God's best. So stay tuned. It's going to be life-changing. And my friend was raised in a very legalistic home. For example, he wasn't allowed to go to dances, go to movies, have dates. He didn't participate in sports when he was a boy. Why? Couldn't wear short pants. Really? Really? What in the world? Now, remember, faulty beliefs about my identity will eventually surface in some kind of dysfunction. So he gets married the first time, has a child, gets divorced. Marries a second time, this marriage lasts a little bit longer, three children, then the marriage dissolves. Children scatter. He was constantly overcompensating for the extremes of his own upbringing and lived in this horrible tension between knowing that Jesus is an important person in my life I mean, everybody ought to know Jesus. Jesus is important because he got that message all the way through his life. And this horrible legalism that left him uncertain about his own identity and always suspicious of who he was and exactly how much God loves him. So he's unable to trust God and his love, the God of love, and was completely unable to submit his life and family to the life of the church. Too risky. Someone might hurt me there. That is so sad, so wrong. We've learned this in parenting. We think the worst possible form of parenting is abandonment, you know, just absent, no longer there, physically there. That's the worst. Well, it's, it's pretty bad, but it's not the worst. Where there is relational disconnect, total abandonment, no love, no affection, no nurture, and where there's no rules, no boundaries, no limitations, just no involvement, We say, well, that's the worst kind of parenting. Actually, it's not. The worst form of parenting is where there are clear rules and regulations in the absence of love and nurture. That is families at their worst, when there are all kinds of rules and expectations, but no love and forgiveness. It's the worst kind of families, and it's the worst kind of church. So, it's a problem when man-made rules become more important than the Bible. And so dress codes or music styles or social restrictions, you know? Uh, and this raises its head at Union Chapel because I said we've got a church full of recovering legalists. And so, so occasionally people will say, "Yeah, are we hosting that after prom meeting in our building? Aren't those kids gonna be running around and dancing and carrying on? Yes, ma'am, just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Really, it's gonna be fun. Well, some of them might get off in a dark corner somewhere and do who knows what. Yes, ma'am. That's likely. It's going to be okay. Really? When man-made rules become more important than people. I'm going to say something now that is profound. So tune back in. This is profound. When your need to be right or correct is more important than loving people, then you leave the Spirit of Christ when your need to be right and your need to be correct is more important than loving people, then you you miss Jesus. When arguing and fighting becomes more important than ministry and mission. This is why most churches don't grow. They don't have any sense of mission. They don't have any sense of vision. They don't have any sense of calling. They have no sense of destiny because they spend all their time in meetings fussing with each other. Union Chapel was like this way when I found it 40 years ago. Shortly after I got here, we spent 2 hours one night arguing in a board meeting about the color we should paint the restroom walls. <laughs> we got over that. Another way you can know this is a problem is when sin becomes an acceptable strategy. Here's what I mean. Jesus healed a man one day with a withered hand. It was all withered, all contracted. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. The man said, well, I can't. You know, I damaged this or was born this way or whatever. This guy, hand was all contracted. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretched it out like this, and a miracle happened. And you can see his bones straightening, connective tissue, ligaments, tendons, nerves, all reforming, miraculous thing. And the guy went like this. Can you see his mouth hanging open? Watching his own body, which hasn't functioned for God knows how many years, suddenly okay? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Here's the problem it was the Sabbath. He healed the man on the Sabbath. What did the Pharisees want to do? Chase Jesus down and scold him? No, no. They wanted to kill him for it. That's crazy. That's demonic. That's evil. That's wrong. We have a core value here at Union Chapel. We have 10 core values. I'll rehearse some of those through before the end of the year. We like to do this once in a while. Here's one of our core values. I'll put it on the screen for you. The people of God are inclined to honor and obey God. The people of God are inclined to honor and obey God. That just, that just means that my worldview as a leader, of you as a parishioner, is that I really think that your instinct, your, your intention is that you wanna honor and obey God. If you, if you know Jesus, I think that you really do want to follow Jesus. You don't do it perfectly. I mean, you'd say, I do wanna do it, but I just I need to say quickly thereafter, I always, I fail. I don't do it well sometimes. I stumble along, okay. But is your heart right to wanna to serve and honor God? Yeah, yeah, I do. I believe that. That's a core value. So that changes the way I lead. That changes the way I pastor. That changes the way the culture is established here. That changes our ethos. That changes us. Because now, if someone stumbles and falls down, you don't go over and stomp them and say, hey, dopey, don't do that. You go over and help them up. Because I know you want to follow Jesus, you just don't do it perfectly. So let me help you up and hose you off, and let's get back on the road. And we can do this together. So it changes, the whole, it changes the whole thing, every decision, every, every action, every relationship because of that value. So God knows your needs. He knows where you've been, what you've done. He loves you. You can trust the God of love. Now, here's the second thing, and I, I'll go quickly. Jesus knew Nicodemus, Nicodemus needed a new start, fresh start. Verse 5, you must be born again means you must have a regeneration of your heart. It's the miracle of God's work in your life. Your spiritual life is dead, is now resurrected to life. It's called the new birth. Look at look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. I want you to see these verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So we, we see the context. Look, we've all messed up. We were all doing our own thing. We were all living a sinful life. And as a result of that, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, our rebellion toward God, our sinful behaviors and nature, separated us from God and subjected us to his wrath. But, see the but there? See the conjunction in this verse? This thing's gonna flip completely over. Watch it. But because of his great love for us, feel that. God, who is rich in mercy, absorb that. Let that sink in. Made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. Somebody say, thank God. Praise God. Wonderful God. Amazing grace. Wow. So born again means to start all over again. means to have a new beginning. New beginning begins with God's spirit. Verse 6, Jesus said, spirit gives birth to spirit. Point three, Jesus knew the relationship was necessary. Verses 14 to 15, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this may sound like a weird reference. In the Sinai Desert, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under Moses, the people of Israel began to grumble. The Jews were tired, tired of the whole experience. And God got tired of listening to their grumbling. And so he caused serpents to enter the camp. And these serpents were biting people and people were dying. Moses interceded for the people and he said, please, God, restore the people. And so he said, all right, do this. He ordered Moses to fashion a serpent out of bronze. So the very image of the thing that was causing their death, the serpent, was lifted up on a pole. And Moses said to the people, Thus saith the Lord, if you look upon this servant, lifted up on this pole, you will not die of the bite of these serpents, but you will live. He didn't say, We're going on a hunting expedition, we're gonna kill all the snakes. He didn't say, God's given us a recipe from this herb or this this source as an antidote. For the poison from these bites, God asked them to take a step of faith and to trust Him that by merely looking upon and recognizing the provision of God in the symbol of that very thing which was causing their destruction, the bronze serpent, that they would be healed. Jesus comes along now, all these years later, and He says, As Moses lifted the bronze serpent into the, into the air, so too must the son of man be lifted up. Now, what was Jesus? Can you see him on the cross? Can you visualize that? What was Jesus lifted up? What what does he represent as he's hanging on the cross? The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin. Became your sin, sir. Became your sin, man. Your sin and mine. He who knew no sin became our sin the very object of God's wrath, the thing that separated us from God, Jesus became, taking upon his own body, the sins of the world. And we know now that as we look upon him and recognize the great love of God, who is rich in mercy, offered his very own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. Praise God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God for his gift. So how do we find this life, this forgiveness, this hope? By faith and trust in the gift of God provided to us through his son, Jesus Christ. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And the reason good people don't go is because there's no one good. No one qualifies as good. The law reminds us. We fall short. We, we fail. We can't make it on our own. So we need a God of love who is rich in mercy to provide a way. And he's provided that way. Amen? Let's pause and pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for this amazing story. Thank you for the truth contained therein. I pray for anyone in the room today who needs a fresh start, a new beginning, that they can turn to a God of love who is rich in mercy and can make us alive with Christ, even though dead. You can pray this prayer very simply, friend. Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me my sins. I've fallen short, I've made mistakes, but I believe that you are God of love, that you are rich in mercy, and you'll forgive me, making me alive in Christ. Come into my heart, forgive my sins. I decide from this day forward to follow you and serve you. By your grace, in Jesus' name, and all the people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?